Welcome to Sweathead with Mike Pollard. I have Sarah Morin from Girl Geek Academy, the co-founder and CEO, live from Melbourne, Australia. How are you, Sarah? I'm so excellent, <laughs> especially so the way excellent. you just said Melbourne. <laughs> I, I, I was just with people who talked about how they know people in Melbourne, and then they said, I know it's Melbourne, but I say I'm Melbourne, and I'm like, hey, I'm cool. I live, I love Melbourne. I don't buy into the whole anti-Melbourne thing just because I'm from Sydney. So I had to explain that again. It's like when I catch up with someone from New Zealand, I have to say, I love New Zealand as well. I'm not anti-New Zealand. I love everyone. I'm very pro New Zealand. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally pro New Zealand. It's a beautiful country. And I'm also pro, New, pro, like if you're watching this, Sarah just got her backdrop together. There's a whole bunch of post-it notes there. And then as I was talking to her, she used the camera to put on her lipstick, her lippy. And I'm like, oh my God, I could well be in Australia right now. This is the most Australian I've felt in the last, at least, I don't know, 24 hours. <laughs> hey look i'm here for it it, it works it's functional <laughs> awesome. so we we i think we're gonna we're gonna have some fun but we're also gonna get, get into some serious topics so girl geek academy you set up recently and part of what you're trying to do from what i've read and just from what i understand is to try to help a million women get into mm. tech and launch their own startups by 2025 which is very accountable yeah. And my lead question, which will get you to actually talk in this interview because so far it's just been me. Um, but my lead question is, why do you want... We, so first of all, hang on. We know that a lot of small businesses don't last three years to five years. Why do you want one million women to start their own businesses? I have thought very long and hard about this question, particularly as a business owner myself. It's like, wait, when it's a tough time, I'm like... Why do I want other people to do this? Um, but it's something that uh, we've thought long and hard about. And the whole reason that we started Girl Geek Academy was we were a group of women working in technology um, and we looked around and we're like, how did we get here and other women didn't? So, like, you know, we used to have girlfriends who also did tech stuff and then over the years they sort of fell away. Um, and so we were like, well, hang on a minute. Like, why, why have we succeeded in that respect and other women haven't? Um, and so we started to look at the reasons and then we were like, well, every app on our phone, every device that we make has largely been engineered by men. Men are profiting from the money that comes from that and also the employment opportunities that come from the tech gold rush. And we were like, well, hang on, women are totally being cut out of this economic opportunity. Um, we want women to be, you know, rich and awesome and billionaires and then they get to be philanthropic or they do it along the way or whatever it is. But like, you know, women can be at the heart of the story of the internet and we know as women who have been a part of that story, um, how great it is and how enjoyable and, um, how rewarding it has been for us. So that is our why. And then it does get a little bit more granular when you look at the failure rate and why would we encourage that? Why would we say, here's the thing you're probably going to fail at, but we want you to do it anyway, um, which I can delve into. <laughs> well, well, also, when you say tech and tech stuff, you're <laughs> definitely taking advantage of the fact that I'm, I, I share an accent with you. What do you mean by tech and tech stuff? Tech and tech stuff. Um, well, we largely mean anything that involves building the internet. So that could be um, even down to 3D printing, so any sort of making 
games. So the games industry, the indie games industry, particularly in Australia, is an emerging economic opportunity. Um, people who go and raise venture capital and then go and build their own traditional tech startups in the way that we think of companies that become unicorns. Um, and then even just getting women to be technical practitioners. So, um, you know, being principal engineer is a pretty kick-ass job um, that we would encourage women to have a great time doing. What does a principal engineer do? So principal engineer, right? So when you go into a tech career path, you go in um, sometimes as the engineer. So you love coding and you're doing all of the code. And what often happens is you get derailed into management. So it's like, you're a great engineer. You know what you should do? Um, if you would like a pay rise, um, you should become a manager. And what it does is it lifts people off the tools and encourages them to become managers. Some engineers that works great for, but some engineers to get the pay rise, to get the promotions, they just want to be an even better engineer. And so the, the, the principal engineering technology path is about respecting engineers as a senior level um, within a company, not necessarily by how many people are under them. And why did you use the word derail? <laughs> well, what happens for women particularly, and this is, you know, I have the lens of a woman in technology. What happens is, like, I'm all for great management, and I think that's very important, but there are some women who aren't suited to management or that that's not their passion and they get so much more joy out of the actual technical work that they go, you know what, you're great at communicating. That would make you a great manager. Um, and because women often, you know, wear the load of being healthy communicators, um, or we are, you know, that's how we're raised, we're seen as social creatures, um, there is this, uh, you know, this inclination to take women off the tools and get them to be the people people. Um, and so, unfortunately, what happens is that then you're, there is this thing that happens where then you're not, technical like not as technical anymore it does contribute to whether people remain as happy in their role because they're like I used to love coding all day and now I just deal with emails um, or whether it's uh, sometimes also you're then competing in management roles you're competing with non-technical people for those um, sometimes for those positions and then what it means is that salary wise like oh you're not technical anymore you've been off the tools for so long so you hit a career ceiling in management roles. Mm. So it's this very, it's, it's a very interesting issue that we've sort of been unraveling. And because there's been so few women in technology, they're new issues that we're discovering. Mm. Um, but it's particularly, yeah, women are really overly affected by that. Right. So, so, so in some respect, um, have a think about a metaphor for this, and maybe you have one that you start all your presentations with. But in some respect, what you're saying is that there are women who get involved with the technical aspect of tech and internet and then there's an opportunity at some point for advancement which means you need to jump off that escalator or yep. lift elevator yep. and then at some point you can't go that high because you're now off the original escalator yes your escalator has a different gradient <laughs> it's like a it's rainbow really gradient what is that <laughs> I don't know, the lift just moves as you're on it. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's like it's, a video game from 1984, probably. It is. It's very, very, very movement oriented. It's, and it's something that we're unlocking as a new problem um, and a problem that we're seeing at scale across multiple industries. And so um, the idea of having a principal engineer and someone who is, you know, you can have career advancement by being extra awesome at being technical. 
um, is is something that's emerging. Yes. So yeah, definitely in the past five years, I've heard a little bit more talk, even even in the advertising world, about craft mm -hmm. versus management, and for there to be non-opposing. It's very Buddhist. Everything's very Buddhist these days, like unless it's not. But like non-opposing ways to progress, not Buddhist, that are about being good at your craft and progressing because of that, but also not having to become a manager when you're really good at your craft. Now, you do travel around a lot as well. Australia is a large continent with a small population a long way away from a lot of places with a huge chip on its shoulder. How do the dynamics that you're talking about differ? How are they more emphasized in Australia compared to, say, when you visit San Francisco, Silicon Valley? Mm -hmm. So it was interesting because um, in 2016, we were debating where we should be headquartered. We were ready to scale our company um, and pounded the pavement in San Francisco, talking to all of the cool tech startups about, hey, we have these great programs for women and you have a women problem. We can totally help you with that. Um, and we found that actually in terms of the potential for our business to succeed, San Francisco was much further behind on um, the progression of women and around women's issues in terms of solving the problem. So I would have been going back to square one and I'm not used to teaching at square one how to be nice to a woman. Um, I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to take women up and have them leading a company and you're, you know, and I'm talking to people in San Francisco who are saying to me, I don't really want to hire women because I would be lowering the bar. And I was just like, no, no, just, like no <laughs> and so um that was really confronting for me i was appalled i could not believe the conversations that i was having with tech startups in san francisco in um but my in 2016 and my co-founder tammy had been working in the bay area for i think two years at that point and she just she'd learned to brush it off her shoulders like she she'd got used she'd acclimatized to the attitude um towards women there and um so i was like actually Melbourne, like, uh, so our National Australia Bank had measured and had been able to improve the number of women in senior technology leadership roles from 18% to 27% in two years. And I'm like, oh, one, you're trying, two, you're measuring it, three, you've probably worked out how to do it. So I went and knocked on their door and I was like, hey, I want to learn how you've done that so that I can take that and like export it and show it to others. Mm -hmm. And they were very happy for us to do that. And so then we decided to make Melbourne home. Plus, Melbourne's an awesome city, so that was quite a nice. <laughs> Hang on, when you're, when you're, are you making a qualitative, subjective judgment on your experience in San Francisco? Did you quantify it? Is it, is it just the experience of you and a few people? So there's, in terms of the people who are working in this space, there's not many. So um, I looked to their opinions and their um, what they had measured and gathered as well when we when we did this analysis, um, whether or not uh, Melbourne trumped San Francisco in that respect was definitely subjective um, because of some other things that had happened. Um, but yeah, we did look around. There's probably about three groups in San Francisco that measure the progress and inclusion of women. The thing is, is that the, the feminist issues in San Francisco and the issues around inclusion are very um, culturally different to Australia. And so from a competitive advantage perspective, obviously we have that in spades to, um, 
to our advantage in Australia. Whereas when I'm wading into America, I realize like the intersectional issues around including women. Um, as a white woman, I was very like taken aback that people didn't include all women. They were like, oh, okay, great. Well, if we just get to 50% women, if they're all white, that's fine. Um, and these were some of the um, some of the issues that were coming up in conversations that were happening in San Francisco. Whereas in Melbourne, we're like, no, 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 no. You can't just pick one subsect of women and say, oh, well, if we get to 50%, that, that counts. And so the conversations are very different here. And I realise that's a very deep kind of um, nuanced conversation to have. But in, in Victoria, the conversation has definitely moved to say, well, which women are we including to get to, you know, a 50-50 ratio in our tech? Because if, we if it's just white women who get in, then unfortunately you've just created a whole heap of new problems for another um, minority group. So we don't want to do that. So when you do say that it's a more nuanced conversation, what are yes. the nuances that are the most difficult to get into? Um, so we have this, I have a, uh, I use a, a wheel that the Victorian government has around, um, and I can share it with you, but it's around, well, what is, inter what does intersectionality mean? And so, you know, you have like one layer out, you have all the things you can see. So it's like, you know, race or disability or, you know, like that level. And then you go to the next level, which is like, are they in a rural and regional area? Do they grow up poor? you know, um, how well educated are they? And then to the, you know, to the outer level, which, you know, can be something else entirely. And so um, the idea is that all of us are diverse in different ways and um, you have to look at that almost like cutting through uh, multiple layers of a cake. It's like Sarah is a woman, um, but she's also from a regional area. She was also the first in her family to go to university. You know, she's also a share house person. You know, she's also has all of these different things that make up who she is. Um, and so when you're talking about inclusion, you need to have that sort of broader understanding that it's not just like, oh, okay, great. Well, we'll include this race of people. They're not all the same. Within their own race, they have their own, their own layers through the cake. How... I'm trying to think through this because when you say intersection, mm. I immediately think of people's professional bios where they're like, I exist at the intersection of business and creativity. Oh, what, yeah. What, so, and I'm like, mm, maybe. When you talk <laughs> about that everyone's diverse and has some kind of intersection at some point, at some point, doesn't that just unify everyone as well? And so, at, on the one hand, I'm try, uh, these these are these yeah. are hard conversations because I don't always have them out loud with people, but at some point, aren't we all the same? Hence, ayahuasca and Buddhism haven't done either. But how do you handle that? Because you're trying to you're trying to include you're trying to get businesses to adjust how they behave based on how people are different. Yet at some point, all those differences connect. Yeah. So essentially, we're all the same in that we're all different. And so when you're coming up with solutions, it's, it's normally not just, oh, yeah, one solution will fix this problem or one person can fix this problem. It's the fact that when you're solving problems, you usually need about, you know, five or six heads or, or 20 heads on thinking about the problem to be able to solve it for everyone. So um, that's at least that's the lens that I take on it. So it's just this idea that 
one of one of the issues that you know you could say is that I mean, even just the fact that most of the internet is built in San Francisco. I mean, they all have a San Francisco lens on the world <laughs> because that's where they live and that's their experience, even if they've moved there from other locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we need the internet to be built in Melbourne, to be built in, you know, Israel, to be built all around the world, to be able to, to understand the way that it will then play out for people wherever they live. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned NAB before, National Australia Bank, and what what's the connection with Girl Geek? So Academy? I was, so I became a Girl Geek in residence, which was a position that we created um, for me to go and do basically active research with the bank um, to work out how they managed to increase um, their women into technology leadership roles. Because essentially, they told us. Uh, you know, I said, oh, how did you do that? And I said, oh, we ran these programs and we did X, Y, Z, and then it happened. And I'm like, no, it didn't. Because if anyone else did X, Y, and Z, they wouldn't get the same outcome. Like there was definitely more to it than that. And they said, oh yeah, cool. We didn't really look at that. Like we've done it. We're happy, very good. But if you want to come and check it out, that would be fine. And the exchange was, I would go in and do that sort of active research in exchange for the fact that they, we would then deliver some of our programs in-house to help them grow their program and help make it better. And yeah, that was just a really fascinating experience. And so I, I think what, what makes, you know, I, I, was talk, I was talking to somebody about this last uh, earlier tonight when we were talking about Melbourne versus Melbourne and ha 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 laughing about that again, which I'm totally okay to laugh at. And then I have to talk about Sydney and how I love Melbourne and how I love New Zealand. That's basically the, the routine. Uh, the banks in Australia survived mm-hmm. 2008 in a very different way to many of the banks in the rest of the world. Do you have any insight into what made the banks do better than many other banks in the rest of the world? I really don't actually. Oh. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. My, my lens on that has just been like how Australia in total survived that. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't have people collapsing on their home loans and things like that. And that was largely due to the financial management at the time. We all got us, we all got the, um, I can't remember what the bonus was called, but we all got $900, which was but just was great. That the ba- was that the baby bonus? Cause I had at it least wasn't 20, the baby baby. Bonus. I had 20. <laughs> That's what I wanted to call it was baby bonus, but it was, it was a stimulus package and everyone was told here's $900, spend it. And it was just one of those things where I remember when I got mine, I was relieved, you know, because the whole world was freaking out and someone said, it's going to be okay. Um, It's going to be okay. We actually want you to spend this money, like just go for it. And there was conversations at the time around, oh, you should pay off your credit card and whatever. I'm sure, you know, smart people did. But I remember going, no, I'm going to spend this because the the place that I spend it will be employing someone. So then they're not the income from that and that's the whole point of the money is to keep circulating through the economy and um yeah i don't know i I think that the the banks definitely benefited from that um because they didn't have people defaulting on their loans and and crashing their whole you know business structure but um yeah i i can't comment too much on the banks because mainly i didn't deal with the banking bit right like i dealt with the with the people bit and the technology bit which was the fascinating bit to me Totally, totally. I want to get back. So my, my one banking story is my wife worked in, connect, in a company connected with one of the banks we mentioned. And in 2008, we had a six-month-old, two-and-a-half-year-old, and we decided to attend a wedding in France from Sydney. And we could just afford it. We had to, it was like a 40-hour trip door-to-door. It was crazy. And on the way back, 
we were we slept in the airport of Paris as Obama got voted in because I thought you could go to an airport and it would stay open and the airports weren't staying open. So we slept on luggage. And I know this is a bit of a first world person story. And Obama got voted in. My wife has spent a bit of time in America. And we're like, hmm, maybe we could move to America right now. And that's not to make any political comment. However, that's my banking in 2008 story because it's very dramatic for me because we almost went bankrupt then. Anyway, okay. <laughs> so you want to help 1 million women learn tech. So let's talk about that first of all and then yeah. set up businesses. Um, how do you know when someone's learned tech? How do you approach learning slash teaching tech? Mm -hmm. So I had to think a lot about this question as well because um, it was actually my co-founder who said, oh, we're going to teach many women. I was like, oh, okay. And then I get on to start doing it. I'm like, wait, what does teaching mean? You know, like what does that mean? Like, oh, I had a five-minute conversation with them and they learned one thing and therefore I've taught that woman and I tick her in my, you know, one towards one million box. Um, and so for us, we've Hang on, what's the answer? What's the answer? Yes or no? Yes and. <sighs> You're so, you're so nuanced. You're so nuanced. <laughs> it's such a complex problem. Um, <laughs> I've spent too long working on this problem. <laughs> um, but essentially, we then did a funnel, right? So um, we have a funnel of different ways of uh, measuring it. Uh, we have four different spots in the funnel. One is awareness, education, action, and success. So we um, have a high media profile in Australia. Um, and we've worked really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I, do this I do this podcast. 30 people listen to each episode. Yeah. Hey, that's 30 dedicated people. Oh Hello, 30. I, I thought Australians <laughs> didn't boast. What's all this about? <laughs> hey, like we kind of had to do the PR thing to make anything bloody move. So, I'm not um, <laughs> okay. So, so you got a funnel. Like, yeah. So we've got a funnel and in the top of the funnel is awareness. Cause I put PR up the top. Cause I'm like, and someone read an article about us and, you know, it may have changed their life. They may have learned something. They may not have, right? And one, I can't measure the other side of that. Um, but I realized very quickly that by the time you take PR measurements, you know, in the way that you measure audience reach and whatever else, like we just smashed that million goal like 15 times over and there's not even really that many women in Australia. It's <laughs> so. a country of 22 million people. I can guarantee there aren't 15 million women. Well, so what do you mean by PR goals? What do you mean by PR goals? So like when you look at, you know, how PR metrics are measured, uh, it is an absolute, I can say it, wank fest uh, in terms of how, you know, you say, okay, you know how, how PR is measured, like in terms of how they report statistics back to you? What was the W word you just used, an Australian person? Hi, wank fest. <laughs> Welcome to my country. All of the rest of the world. Oh, I feel so at home right now. So, I mean, so basically with PR, you measure the, um, the dollar value by going, you know, um, here is what I would pay for an ad in that spot. Um, I didn't pay for the ad. A journalist wrote about it. So the ad value is that advertising value times three. Yes. Um, so which is an absolute, like, who came up with that? Um, then in terms of how you measure reach, you say, okay, cool. What was the circulation of that paper or that, that publication? Great. That's how many people we reached with that article. And it's like, that's assuming every person who ever read that publication, read that publication that day 
and that they read your article. Like, no, that is a ridiculous part of me assumption to make. Um, and so that's why I say that it's a wank fest. That's why I know those stats are shot and I know it doesn't count. So can I, um, can I, can I give you, yeah. can I give you PR value from a Korean tourism board? Yes. Uh, I did, uh, analyzing an underground rap magazine. So back in the day, I don't know if you know, you see this rat magazine. It had a very high media profile. I'm joking. It, no, it was just me. I, just, I, I wrote it and then I read it. It was just me. Uh, and I did a 14-page profile on South Korea. We did a lot of coverage of international rap. And I had met the Korean National Tourism Organization, the KMTO in Sydney. And it was great. 30 minutes, hour meeting. Anyway, <laughs> I then went to Korea, <laughs> South Korea, and interviewed a whole bunch of people because I got peeps over there. And uh, about three months later, they're like, what's your rate card? And I'm like, you didn't do anything for me. What's this rate card question about? And I used to do full page ads back then for 900 bucks to $1,200. There were 14 pages. So they, they, they were like, that's 30 grand of coverage. They didn't do the final calculation in your piece. I'm like, it's definitely not 30 grand of coverage. But you know, anyway, it doesn't but make that's sense. that's it, right? Yeah. It's, it's a wank it fest. It is a wank fest. But also, regardless, if that's the wank fest we're in, that's the, you know, that's how everyone manages it. <laughs> But it is, right? Like, so it, it does give you a common, regardless, it gives you a common way of having that conversation with people and say, this was our PR value. If everyone calls it the same value, attributes it the same, then we know, can compare apples with apples. Um, yeah. And so then we were like, well, that's clearly not enough. So then we were like, okay, great. So let's look more into how many women have we educated and then how many of those women have actually done something with that education. Mm-hmm. And then once they've done something with it, how many have succeeded? Now, we are still in what I would call CRM hell in setting up how we actually manage all of that. Um, but, you know, we've got, we've got highline um, values around some of those things at the moment and we're trying to get better at, you know, knowing exactly, even just knowing exactly which women, right, so that I can actually call them up and go, hey, you know how you learned that thing from me? Great, I need this next thing or we're going to do this together or whatnot. Um, so we're still, there is no CRM in the world that is really helping us measure our impact in that way. Um, but we are cutting like sticky taping current CRMs together to try and get something together that's up to my standards, mm-hmm. but I may have to build my own. Who knows? <laughs> I think if we keep talking, you're going to have like a JR Tolkien map where we have Wankfest <laughs> on the far West and CRM hell on, I guess that's <laughs> Southern. Um, Interesting. So I know we're joking a lot, but it is a serious issue. And sometimes it's okay to have fun about a serious issue. What are some of the meaningful, what, what are some of the meaningful stories that have come from your interaction through what you're doing right now? Um, so probably one of the most powerful that I've had, like was definitely, it rocked me and um, my teacher trainer, Helen. Um, we, when we launched Miss Makes Code, which is our program for young girls ages five to eight, we were teaching young so girls to code. Miss? M- Miss Makes Code. Miss Makes Code. Yeah. Well, that's snappy. I like that. Thanks. <laughs> so, um, we had, yeah, so we launched Miss Makes Code. We received federal government funding, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And it allowed us to go and teach a thousand teachers to teach coding in the classroom. 
Um, Hang on, when you say it then, allowed, what does that mean? Yes. Oh, like we didn't have the money otherwise. Okay. So like, like uh, with, so we got $250,000 from the government. Yes. Um, and that gave us the, the ability to hire a teacher trainer and develop the curriculum and then get out and teach a thousand teachers. So it allowed us to do that. Awesome. Um, and so when we launched the Mystics Code uh, program, we went to a feminist film festival in Sydney um, because we were teaching young girls how to use coding um, to build their own games and games is known um, as connected with the screen industry and the film industry in Australia. So we thought, yep, feminist film festival, that's great. And it was, I think, our second or third cohort of young girls that we'd taught directly. And we had a young girl who came up to us at the start and she said, hello, I'm wearing my feminist hat today. And I was like, oh, okay, that's good. Congratulations, you're welcome here, come along. And we got through the day and it got to lunchtime and she used the disabled toilet. And we were like, oh, are you okay? Like, you can come into the girls' toilet, like, but if you need to, that's fine. And she said, no, people always get mad at me when, and I don't know which toilet to use, so I just use the disabled toilet. And we're like, okay, like, whatever you need, it's fine. Um, and then at the end of the day, um, she'd sort of said, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a trans girl. and." Sometimes I wear my, you know, sometimes I want to wear my feminist hat and then other times I don't want to wear that hat. And she said, today I just, I was really happy and you're the nicest adults I've ever met. And Helen and I like, mm. <laughs> you know, we were just like, wow. Um, and since then we've had a lot of young trans girls um, come to our um, workshops and that was something that was just so unanticipated. And particularly because, you know, we do use language around, you know, the Girl Geek Academy and Miss Makes Code that, like, we're very conscious of not being exclusionary and the fact that those young girls feel welcome with what we do is just, like, every time I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so glad that they are happy here. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, that was just, like, something that was just, yeah, really, I, I'm now so much more conscious of it. Um, you know, and we have, like, a lot of trans members in our community, um, including, like, in our founding team. And so, you know, it is an issue, like, you know, it's it's something that we're very across. But it still takes you back when someone, like, thanks you for it or, like, says they feel welcome. It's just, um, yeah, unanticipated positive consequences are always good. Hmm. And so when you use the word girl, how, in what way are you using it? So we use it as girl geek. So the girl is more like a description, right? So, so it's more like a, um, yeah, like a, the geek is the noun. So it's like we welcome all geeks. Hey, you're a girl geek um, as opposed to a geek girl, right? So like um, the geek is what you are. Um, a girl is a lens on that. Um, and we say that anyone who feels like they are a girl geek is welcome with us. So that could mean anything across any spectrum and we don't say you can't. Um, you know, Mark, if you turned up one day and said, hey, I'm a girl geek, like, I'm totally here for it, we'd be like, great, come on in. Um, there'd be, we, we don't, yeah, we don't judge in that way. Um, and we had to think long and hard about that, like, in the language and how we, and we're still always constantly updating any descriptions we have around our website. Um, and if in doubt, we leave it out and just say, if you want to come, come. It's fine. Do you have a harsher opinion about nerds? <laughs> yes, no. 
No, I'm but just, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. You know, there's, a, do, there's an do. assumed knowledge in that joke about geeks versus nerds. Do you differentiate yeah. between that? Well, it's just hilarious because you know, even people saying, "Oh, young people won't, won't like the word geek," and I'm like, "No, we're rebranding tech, right? Like, this is the whole thing. Is we're rebranding. Like, if you think about tech and how it's been branded so far, it's a masculine brand, and we're like." we're blowing the whole thing up, mate. Like it's fine. Um, and so that's why everything we do looks and feels amazing. And so it's like, actually geek is awesome. Like that's great. Hmm. Hmm. What are some of the main, you, you must have a lot of people reach out to you who are both curious about what their life with, with coding and tech and, a business in their hands would look like and who are very nervous about making that leap. What, what do you think causes the main parts of anxiety in making that change or those changes? Yeah. So, um, it, it is a big, it, it's a confidence thing. Um, and so what we try to do is provide as much information as possible about what that world would look like so that the confidence builds from being informed and, you know, okay, I've done my research about what I'm stepping into um, and making that available. Um, I think some of the anxiety is often about, like particularly if you're looking at stepping into your own business or or what that looks like is when and how to do that. And we we talk about, um, you know, it's almost like de-risking that decision. So it's, you know, we know the failure rate of um, of small businesses is so high, and it's like, well, why would I should why should I still do that? Well, actually, because your first business may fail, but the second one could be awesome, right? So, like, you know, you need to get into it and sink your teeth in to be able to to build that entrepreneurial muscle, um, and that's how success comes. Um, and then I think, yeah, it's so 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 I. Sh- it's more about how we build our process, which is, it's an, you know, the idea of an on-ramp. We actually work with a team out of Brisbane who have a startup on-ramp program um, because we like the idea of saying to someone, actually, that idea is crap. Like, wait until, you know, like, you, you or you haven't gone through the process of making that idea or, or that, that business need viable from a business perspective. You're not ready to quit your day job yet. But if you do X, Y, and Z, then in three months, six months, eight months, you know, whatever, then hopefully you will be and your business should be able to give you these signals that you're ready to step into that full time as opposed to, I think I'm ready to go now, quit my job. Oh, I was not ready to go now. (laughs) So like, you know, it is this idea of kind of like, how do you get off the career, you know, or or, or out of the job and into the business? Um, it can be a phased approach mm-hmm. um, and, and depending on your business type, those indicators are different. For some people it's, oh, I've gone to a venture capitalist, they've given me $10 million and I'm, I have to be in this full time. I can't tell them I'm still working on my day job, otherwise I don't get that $10 million. So the situations can be different. I get tired of that. It happens to me every week. What's, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and what, what is an entrepreneur? So I think of an entrepreneur as someone being – um, someone who likes to solve problems, um, yeah. which I hope is more and more people. Um, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial thinking to me is saying, I identify there is a problem here and I can see the resources or bring the skills to solve that problem. Um, if you are 
socially minded, that may be a social problem. If you um, want to apply those skills to something that will make large sums of money, then you work out how much people will pay for that, um, pay to solve that problem and make it go away. And then you learn how to charge people for it. Okay. Um, so so that's, that's my lens on entrepreneurial thinking and approach. Okay. So, part of, I mean, you, you could solve crosswords and be solving problems, but you're adding the lens of charging money for it. You've used the word scale a few times, which is definitely yeah. not an Australian word. So you've picked that up in recent years, but what, yeah. what are the other things that define an entrepreneur? Because sometimes you might mm. just want to set up a small business and it's just you yeah. and that's totally okay. But you know what, who, you know, who doesn't say that that's okay? The entire internet. Like, unless you're trying to be a massive multi-billion dollar business, try harder. Yeah. No. I mean, fair. I'm, you know, I think there's something to be said, like for the way you become an entrepreneur, right? Like, so for us, um, a lot of what we do is founded around happiness because as a social, like I always say, so we're a social change business, right? Like my business model is centered around the fact that with enough, enough women in the world, I should be able to convince enough of them to buy my product that they want to build the internet, right? Like that's my product that I'm selling is come build the internet with me. I'm going to charge you to help you get there or I'll charge a company to help you get there, however it works. Um, but that's how my business model works. I don't think you can change the world and be an asshole at the same time. Um, that's something that I've had some very personal experience. Hang, with. Well, hang on. <laughs> Are you talking about science here? Because I'm pretty sure a lot of assholes have ruled the world. What are you talking about? What I should say is you can't like claim to be this, like, I'm so amazing. I helped all these people, but I, you know, fucked all these other people over in the process. Like I just, it drives me mental when people unethically change the world. Isn't that the history of humans? What are you talking about? Yes. It makes me so mad, Mark. Can't we just change history? Oh, Okay. So with what you're, with what you're talking about, cause you know, you yeah. have this huge, you have this huge world purview with what you're doing. Are you finding pockets of activity that you identify with that you support outside of Australia in places yeah. around the world that you would not have expected it? Yeah. Um, all the time. Uh, well, for me at the moment, I think one of the big things that's changed for us has been since Me Too, right? So um, it has allowed a lot of the women's activities that's been happening all around the world to gain profile um, because those women have either got more, you know, um, more action-oriented or whatever since then. But the media is now also reflecting back what some of those things are. So we're seeing around the world um, movements like mine, you know, in, in all sorts of industries and whatever else, and they, they stick their hand up and they go, oh, yeah, I'm doing this awesome thing and it works. Do you want to borrow it? Do you want to share? And um, <clears throat> a lot of that sort of happening. And I think, yeah, I, I think things like Me Too and Trump, to be honest, um, like has really elevated the way that women can have these conversations about what they're working on. And so I see it everywhere now. Um, and my co-founder and I were having a conversation the other day. I have four co-founders, but, um, Tammy and I were just talking, she's like, I feel it. Things are changing, like legit changing. And it's funny because I was feeling the same thing. And it's just one of those slow, gradual changes where, um, yeah, women are uh, having like their voices heard and their actions recognized 
in ways that haven't been before so that other women can see it. Like I felt like we've been working on an island for so bloody long. Um, well, we have been, it's Australia. But, um, you know, being able to, to see what other women are working on has started to happen. So um, for us, that's been, um, there's a group called Pixels uh, out of Canada. So they work to include more women in the games industry. In New Zealand, they had a, a whole hashtag around girls behind the games, which came out of a small game studio that partnered, I think, with Microsoft to sort of showcase all of this stuff. And so we're seeing a lot of these different people pop up and say, hello, this is the awesome I'm doing, and other people choosing to write about it or talk about it in a way that then, yeah, more women see it. How could the games industry be different or how is the games industry different in recent years because of more women being involved? So in Australia, 51% of game players are women. Um, 19% of game makers are women. Well, hang on. And what, so, what kind of games? Because I've seen statistics like this for ages ever since Facebook had yeah, that crazy yeah. bunch of crappy games. What, what yeah. do you mean by games? Um, so that comes from the Australian Game Developers Association of Australia. Wait, I just said that twice. Um, is that words with friends? Is it? It is, is largely it, is not. It yeah, it's, it is. Um, for Australia, it's mainly the indie games industry. Um, uh, yes, so it is those AAA titles as well as indie games. I, I don't, I'm not aware of it including like, yeah, like words with friends and, and sort of what I would call apps <laughs> um, unless they are designed as games because those people actually need to identify as working in the games industry in Australia. So that's an industry-run survey where people say, hello, I'm in the games industry, right. um, whereas I don't think that those who make iOS apps um, that go viral in their games, I don't mm -hmm. think those people are connected to the industry associations themselves. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it means they're probably lost in the figures, but also um, it's not, it doesn't count. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's how we measure those statistics. And, um, and have you seen a, a change in companies that have a better proportion of female developers. It's really hard to, I find some of these conversations very hard because I'm tripping over words because I don't want to use the wrong word. Oh yeah, exactly. But yet, yeah. Some, sometimes someone like me needs to ask a dumb question. How are the games yeah. different when there are more people who identify as being female involved with the making of the game? That's the question I want to ask. Yeah. I don't know why it's so different. So really, a really, no, no, that's okay. Like a really dumb shit example is um, there was a game that was being created out of America and um, this is more about the artistry, but these people had designed a weapon um, and, you know, had done it. It was almost ready to ship the game and a woman's walked in and gone, that's a pad. Like, they'd actually designed a weapon that looked like a woman's sanitary pad. And everyone's like, oh, no, it's not. <laughs> anyway, she's like, well, it is, and I can't make you change it, but I've told you, uh, good luck with that. They shipped the game. And of course they had a, you know, sanitary pad as a weapon and everyone's just like, why did you do that? Like, how did you not, how did no one point that out to you? Um, and so that's like a, you know, an overtly obvious example of things where it's like, you just didn't even have the lens. You didn't even have the woman in the room to tell you, you know, whatever. Um, and that's can, not to do with the engineering, but that's just, yeah. Can I ask you with that example, yeah. what's yeah. wrong with, what's wrong with a pad being a weapon? So there's nothing wrong with the pad being a weapon, but they didn't intend for that to be it, right? Like it was, they, you know, it was like they've gone, oh, it's like, oh, that's open. Um, you know, it's like a, like a 
thing or whatever. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that except that it was unintended and it was very obvious they didn't know that's what it was. So, for example, if it was, like, hard, right, but actually a pad is soft, right, there, there was all these, like, ancillary things around that. Hmm. Um, so it was just silly to not or to not hear it, like, especially when it was pointed out to them. Um, but that's not to do with the engineering. That's obviously, you know, that could have been brought up in user testing or whatever. Like, there's a million ways that could have been um, unleashed. But, look, I was speaking with an engineer yesterday. Um, and I guess there's, because uh, the question really is, like, what's wrong if it's just male engineers almost, right? Or, like, you know, the, the flip side of that question is, is sort of that. So it's, like, what's great about having women engineers versus what's wrong if all the engineering teams are male? Um, but it's more about, it's not about the quality of the work or the right, you know, women create equal quality work. It's about the teams themselves. Um, you know, my boyfriend's an engineer, um, you know, my co-founders are engineers and they're like, just the working relationships. Like when you have all the same people in a room, um, it's boring. It's not a nice place to work. It's not a, it's not a healthy workplace environment. Um, you know, you, you want to have different people in the room so you can have different conversations and different products get built, different decisions get made. Um, and most teams that I've spoken to that have diverse teams, they will have the examples that say, this is how it was different for us and this is why we have a better experience. Yeah. For me personally, like why, so I don't come at it from a creating better products angle. Like I just don't. I come at it from an economic perspective. But there was another perspective that I came across in 2016 completely changed why why we do this work like my why changed entirely which i didn't anticipate and that was um around gender equality more broadly and uh i was made aware so we got in victoria we got a minister for family violence um, for the prevention of family violence and essentially they um the victorian government had done a heap of research around what prevents family violence like what what are the prevention measures and they found that um those countries who have higher levels of gender equality have lower late rates of family violence and that they've done, you know, a lot of studies as to, well, you know, is that just a coincidence or, or how does that attribution work? And when you think about it, that, you know, oh, yeah, that actually you can kind of see how that would make sense. And so for me, I'm like, well, if the internet isn't built in a gender equal way, then what are some of the consequences of that? Like I know myself having, you know, experienced trolling on Twitter and, you know, a whole heap of things. And I don't even, I have it so not very bad compared to some of the women that I know. Um, you know, the fact that Twitter hasn't fixed the trolling problem overly, like disproportionately affects a lot of the women that I know in, in some of the ways that they're harassed. Um, one thing was brought up the other day around, um, you know, like how can, you know, how everyone has the Amazon Echoes or Apple homes in their in their houses now. Like how can those be weaponized by people who um you know domestic abusers? And so there's all these things where it's like, wait, hang on, what are all these problems that are gonna come from this new tech world? And are women's voices in the room when we're trying to solve for them? Um, because women's problems primarily are very different to um, some of the problems experienced by men. So when we're making decisions around well, what product do we build, which problems do we want to solve, let's solve problems that, you know, women are affected by. Um, mm. That's how we'll have an internet that also serves women. What are some of the ways in which you've been trolled that people might find surprising? 
Mm. I do want to say uh, the part of that question could be in what ways are women trolled that men aren't, but yeah. I would only ask you that because you do have mm. a girl geek, girl geek academy, there's a gender situation. Yeah. I would never ask you that question where I would expect you to represent a gender or people who identify no, with No, no, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Help, help me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sincere um, question. Well, it's deep because, like, you know, you often think of trolling as being very direct. Um, whereas, I mean, it's so much... Like, I want to say it's tiny. Like, it's death by a thousand cuts. So as opposed to saying, oh, this guy one day came and, you know, yelled at me a lot and that was trolling. It's more like everyday sexism or, you know, like the casual sexism that happens over time um, or even just, you know, like we'll put out stuff about our workshops and people will be like, oh, why aren't, it used to be, why aren't men invited, sure. you know? And I'm like, do I have to reply to that? Like that on my cognitive load, like do I need every time I post something that some just shit poster just, just, just don't like, why do you think you have to talk to me about that? Like Google it, you know, like it's on our website. Um, and so I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, particularly like I'm thinking of one of my co-founders in particular gets a lot. And so what happens is, and this is just interesting is, she just goes, ah, I can't deal with it anymore. Like rage quits, turns it off, or, you know, like yells at someone pretty much on the internet, like yells back. And then that person goes, oh, you didn't have to overreact. And it's like, okay, so you said one thing, but you were the straw that broke the camel's back. So she's not overreacting to you. She's reacting to the entire situation. Um, and then that person is seen as all of those sexist words that get used around oh, crazy, neurotic, you know, like all of the, you know, she's hysterical about this one tweet. And it's like, no, it was the like last one of the thousand previous tweets that, you know, set her off. Um, yeah. And so for me, that's the, that's the sort of, that's why I say I don't have it back that bad because other people have some very direct horrid shit coming their way. Um, yeah. Which I don't, I don't, I actually don't even want to repeat here. Like, you know, it's just like. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I, I, uh, yeah. we could we can mind map mind map that at some other point but do do you find that in the with with your goal with your mission do you talk mm. about this as part of the course courses and and experiences that you put on is this a formalized part is it you know let's talk about yeah. this after hours so we build into so like basically the courses are an excuse to get women in a room the you know yes that they will learn technically they will learn things that's great but the absolute primary reason we get them in the room is so they make friends with other women and they build those support networks with each other. Like that is the asset they take away and they take it away forever. Like we have, you know, um, some of the women who came to our very first hackathon in 2014, um, you know, they've been best friends for four years. We've had, you know, because also the other thing is it's really hard to make adult friends. Um, like you don't have that many excuses to make adult friends anymore. You know, like there's, there's just, that's how socially it sort of works. And so for us, there is a cohesive purpose, like, and it's very deliberate to say, great, let's make sure these people have enough conversations with each other that they build their own friendship networks because then we can step away, right? Like they'll support each other and that's way more scalable than us trying to be like the support person for everybody. Yeah. Um, building that community is really important. Yeah. Oh, I don't really like the word community there. 
building those individual friendship networks is important. We haven't launched a community yet. I don't like that word. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are people listening to this who think that you must have some kind of dream job that many people would aspire to. And you've ticked and tacked a little bit in your career. How did you end up in this place right now? Um, so for me, uh, like the, I am, I am doing my dream job. Um, absolutely. Uh, Sarah, no need to yeah. boast. <laughs> hey Josh, guys, don't get carried away. <laughs> it like when dreams become reality, they definitely look very different to what you thought they would. Um, but we constantly dream of the next part, right? Like, so my co-founders and I, we have a, you know, the dream Pinterest board and we put random stuff on it and then we go, oh, that's, that's happening now. Mm. Um, but it came, so for me, I studied journalism um, and it was after being pushed out of tech in high school. So of my five co-founders, I'm the only person who was actually, what I would say, pushed out of tech and it took me a long time to understand that's what happened. Um, and so I studied journalism and while I was there, First year, YouTube was invented and I turn around to my lecturers and I'm like, holy shit, like this is going to blow up journalism. This is going to change how we do all of this stuff. And my lecturers were like, cool, we don't teach that. And so my hunger for what was new and, you know, all that tech, that, that tech energy and love about the future being created, I was like, well, I'll just learn it anyway. And so, you know, I learned about how Facebook was working, YouTube was working and all of that sort of stuff. And then I built a career off the back of that. But at the same time at university, I accidentally started hanging around the kids in the business school. So journalism was separate to business. And they were doing a lot of community-based projects and we were looking at how to do community-based projects. Well, like how do, you, how do you help other people fit in a way that also doesn't unhelp them? And that's what I mean by not being an asshole. So like, um, you know, like there was a big thing. So, you know, in the 90s where people were like, we're going to build a well for this you know, community in Africa. Oh, but by the way, the well breaks like 12 months after we leave and then they're mm. left trying to figure out maintenance. So like, how do it's you not also, do that? Also known as the Olympics and the World Cup. Yeah, exactly right. Oh my God. <sighs> Olympic like haunted grounds are one of my favorite like YouTube, um, internet things to look up. Mm. Um, and so I, I remember calling my mom and saying, I don't know when these things are ever going to be connected, but I know I want to do both equally. And I'm like, I know it seems crazy, but like, I love all this community development stuff. And I also love communicating. Like, I think they're both really important. And she's like, yeah, cool, whatever. Like, let me know when you have a job. Um, and then I actually sort of went from one job to the other until they merged into um, quite, you know, where I got to use both of those skill sets and to the point where, like, I knew I always wanted to start a company. Um, and then I just remember going, well, I either go and work for someone else um, or I take 12 months to figure out how to set up this one. Um, and I gave myself the whole of 2016 to work out how to do this sustainably. We'd been doing it as a hobby project for two years as a hobby business. And I was like, right, if it doesn't work, I've only lost two, like a year um, and I can still go and get one of those jobs. Like I'm qualified. I'm, I was 30. So like I was at the point in my career where I was old enough that I had enough skills that I would still be relevant to the market in 12 months. Um, and mm -hmm. so I was aware that I had that timeline as well. Like my skills weren't going to date in 12 months. That's one of those unspoken infographics that the internet yeah. could benefit from. There, there are definite <laughs> inflection points that are 
largely psychological, possibly biological and possibly historical, but what you just said right mm. there is not a common thing that people talk about in public. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, it was almost like I'd got ahead of the game by 12 months. Yeah. If I, if I spent my, my um, you know, my, my career savings, <laughs> I would still be okay. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be ahead of the game, but I wouldn't be behind. And so I was like, fuck it, I'm doing it. And I knew it wasn't the smartest way to do it, but I knew it was that time period in my life where I had to do it. Pre-kids, pre, 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 post, you know, education, post early jobs, you know, had the brands on the board that I could still have a halo effect from those for a while. Um, and then it really got down to the 12th month. <laughs> and I, like I'd been throwing balls up and I was like, I got my strategy right. I'd done enough prototyping. I'd sort of kept myself afloat with little side jobs through the year. And then it got down to the end of the year and I had three balls in the air. And I can remember thinking, freaking out and going, I should throw four or five or six balls up in the air. But if they all landed, I'd be fucked. And I was like, if I, these three, even if one comes off, I'm fine. If none come off, I'll go back and get a job. And if all three come off, I'm still fine. So like it was just that thing. And then all three happened. So I got the Girl Geek in Residence set up at NAB. I got federal government funding for Miss Makes Code. And I got state government funding for setting up SheHacks. And then that basically came, became three major clients um, that allowed me to then instantly flip from being, hello, I'm Sarah, I work from home uh, <laughs> in my pyjamas, to, okay, great, I can hire staff, I can build what I want to build, I have money for marketing, and I'm going to get a job, you know, I'm going to get three jobs done. So, yeah, that was great. I'm wow. so glad that happened. <laughs> So, I mean, and also couldn't have right like I am so aware equally if the market wasn't ready for what I was trying to sell them they could have all told me to get stuffed right and so but that was the risk that I was prepared to make and it worked I'm still into this pre-post infographic and six balls in the air so like a couple of final questions here if you're working with someone who wants to get into tech and you want to help them set up a business do you advise them to have three, four, five, six balls in the air? And what, what is that advice? Or is it about committing to a thing? Well, we, 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 we are very much a fan of like... So, so I think it's the difference between creativity and what the market wants. You posted something on Twitter the other day. Hold off, um, hold off. Was, Let me speak yeah. for myself, Sarah. Yeah, yeah, you step up. Explain what did that I say? thing that you what posted. It was like creativity up the top and then it said something and something else and there were three things and i remember going yeah it didn't yeah. say creativity what was it artist entrepreneur employee artist damn it <laughs> those three things so, okay speak for yourself you can explain that to me <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but the idea of artist entrepreneur and employee right like so that spoke well to me because we have a lot of people who say i have an idea and i want to make a business and i'm like that's the artist part. Like what you want to do is create something. That's your idea. But the entrepreneurial part in me says, is that idea solving a problem? Because that's where the entrepreneurial part comes into play. Because if you're solving a problem for someone, you can charge for it, right? Someone pays to make problems go away. Mm -hmm. There's what I was going to tweet back to you is it should be a Venn diagram. So like there is overlap between the artist and the entrepreneur and the employee. And I think that they are, you know, the, 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 it's not straight bucket, bucket, bucket. Oh, there yeah. is overlap. Oh, so, there's, but, there's, but, a, there's a billion things there. And just quick, and I'll let you finish your point. Yeah. The, the thing that I, so 
for some reason, I don't know why, but every now and then someone will approach me and say, not sure what to do in life. And I started to find this brutal slash simplistic bucket thing quite useful. I don't use the word bucket very often. I don't like to bucketize things or dimensionalize them. <laughs> you know. Artist, entrepreneur, employee. And yes, all of those things can overlap. You can be all, you can be all of the, you can be whatever you want in life. I don't, whatever you need. However, to me, an artist is someone who creates their own rules and that involves income because we, for the most part, if you're listening to this, you do live in a society that has capitalism at play. Artist invents own rules, tries to work out how to survive around that, where the heart of what they do is self-expression and expressing ideas. And that can involve solving problems. Entrepreneur does try to solve a problem, not always, but what they're trying to do is uh, create a, a business that they own where other people do the bulk of the work, and they do important work, and then they're trying to create repeatable systems that can scale with the aim primarily of selling at some point. An employee essentially has someone dictate the rules of their income. You could be a freelancer, a consultant, a part-timer, a full-timer. You could, you could get a franchise and you're still at the behest of the company that owns that franchise that you bought or hired or whatever the language is and still really be an employee. You just gave yourself an, a job. You can call it an entrepreneur, but you're not. Uh, and it's not to diss any of those. It's purely that if you just play a mind game with yourself for five minutes about which one do I lean towards? Because you could be an employee and be an artist. You could be artistic. You could be an artist and be entrepreneurial. But I find that those three ways of differentiating who you are at the core, it's just a thought experiment. So sorry, I can continue. I just wanted to explain that. No, no, I'm glad you did. Because the, the thing that really spoke to me is like what we do is actually art. And so although I talk about it being a business, because we make our own rules, we, we campaign on things that like from a business perspective, we shouldn't probably touch, right? Um, although it does add to our brand of being like, ooh, they're so feisty. Um, you know, so in that respect, like, and we, we're not, yes, we're trying to create scalable systems, but we're trying to help our art touch everybody. Um, and so it's, it's audience engagement for us as opposed to, us making lots of money as the primary driver or you know like um yeah like there's so so that really spoke to me um in terms of just our approach and particularly in terms of our approach for making social change okay uh last last question what is the most difficult question that someone could ask you about the work you do right now what is something that you and your founders talk about at 1 a.m be like, oh. and then you talk about it. What's that? It's probably like where to stop is probably the biggest thing. It's like, I mean, I know like we're up, like I'm up at 1am because I like one, I love this work. And so anything you're in love with, like you can be addicted to. So, you know, like I'll, like, I've been trying to build this little, like this speaker's website that I'm trying to build. And I'm just, you know, but I'm like, Oh, I'm not on work time. It's my fun part, even though it's still work. And so um, there's where do we individually draw boundaries and how do we sort of, you know, do that. Um, but then also like, God, a million's not that many, you know, like should we be, you know, because, we, we, you know, we were kind of joking that like, you know, okay, 2025, when we hit a million, we'll hit a million before then. But like, you know, 2025, 
we move on to the next problem, you know, or do we keep going and is this our life's work? Mm. Um, and that's something that like it goes, it, it's difficult because it's like, well, why would you put on all this effort to walk away from that problem? But I'm kind of like, I love solving problems. Like I don't want to spend my whole life solving one problem. I want to, you know, cut my teeth solving a heap of different problems, mm-hmm. um, particularly because I've worked to, to build the skills around how to do that. Okay. Last, last question. You used the mm-hmm. phrase something like, this is work I love. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very easy thing for someone to say in a more high media profile interview than this. Yeah. But I feel I, it resonates. I, I can feel it from your words and your body language. However, a lot of people, I believe, feel that that's slightly out of reach or, mm-hmm. or it's something they don't deserve or they're not sure how to get there. So for you, how, how do you define work that you love? How do you know it is work that you love? What are the elements that make it up? And then finally, and you might have to repeat like answers to other questions. Hmm. How did you make your way to that? Yeah. Well, the first thing I was thinking of when you asked that question though, is like, what are the consequences of doing work that you love? Right? Like, there's this idea that if you're doing work that you love, that your whole life will just be amazing. Um, but I talk about having, like, it's the, it's, this is gross. It's the dirty underwear on the floor, right? Which is like, I do this work and I know the consequences of doing this work is that, you know what, if I didn't get the washing done this week, I have to be okay with that. Um, and so it's like, some people are not okay with that. Some people need, a, you know, certain things in their life where it's just like, I need to let go, like, to have this awesome thing that I'm working on, um, I choose to let other things be a little less awesome. So mm-hmm. I'm minimum viable cleaning in my house, which I don't love. It does annoy me. It frustrates me very badly. But that's the, the, there's trade-offs to, to, do, to making some decisions. So it's not like, oh, by having the perfect job, you have the perfect life. It's no, I have the perfect job because other things are a little bit imperfect. And that's, that's the, the balance for me. Um, in terms of, sorry, can you repeat some of those other questions? That was just my response. I was like, oh, Uh, it's it's not perfect. (laughs) I'm totally stumbling over some of my questions tonight because these are important things that I can, that we can jest about. And this is, I I appreciate the jestiness of this conversation. The the follow-up question was, how did you make your way there? And then I've got another follow-up question, which is if you're listening to this and you're not in a first world country, what Mm -hmm. we're talking about having work that you love can sound like a very first world thing. So first question is how did you make your way to work that you love? Yeah. So I made a lot of mistakes um, and, and I've become really comfortable with just not doing it right. Um, And so knowing that like in order for me to grow, I've had, like I say to people, I know I'm going to make, I'm going to make five, like I'm going to do five things wrong today, like at least. Um, and that was really hard for me to sort of like get to that in terms of the actual process. I, I, when I had my day jobs, I will say, um, before I went into my own business, I sucked up everything I could and treated every job I had as a learning experience for the next thing. So one of my friends talks about when they do job interviews, they'll say, how will this job help you get to your dream job? Like they upfront know, you know what, this isn't your dream job that's great. What can we do for you while you're here that you will be happy and learning towards making your way to that step? 
And that's how I've treated everything that I've done. So, you know, I, I've, I've got to work with amazing teams and like, I still have some of my old bosses as mentors, like, because that's what I got out of those working experiences was going, that person knows how to do things I don't know how to do or thinks in a way that I don't know. And so there's friendships and and mentoring opportunities have carried through. Um, And so for me, that was um, knowing when it was time to leave a job for the next learning experience and essentially treating, treating work like, as if uni was continuing, like as if, as if university was still happening, but I was picking different subjects. Mm. And so that by the time I got to the thing that I needed to do, I'd done enough subjects that I had enough of a rounded experience that I would have the confidence to then go and make it on my own. Okay. And then final, final, final question is having those options, (laughs) being able to move and maneuver to probably the bulk of the world will sound like privilege how do you translate what you've learned and what you've done to someone for whom that just feels so distant? Like- yeah. So, so one, it is privilege. And my friends and I do talk about how are we going to spend our privilege? Okay. So it's like, if we've been gifted with this privilege, do we sit on it and like almost feel fat by it or do you spend it? And like, you know, how much of it do you spend and when do you choose to do that? Um, in terms of people who, don't have that privilege to spend. Um, I I would just say one of the things because I haven't I, I haven't always had that privilege. Like I don't and I feel it too. Like when I'm in conversations with people who have been you know who have gone to private schools and have had wealthy parents and who didn't have to work part time jobs through uni and all of that university and that sort of thing. Um, and I just think that like. Of the situations I've had, I find the gap that didn't require privilege to get through. So it's like, um, I guess if you're in a third world country, Twitter would be an interesting, like, you know, an accessible space where privilege, depending on what, what you mean by privilege, but it's like, okay, great. You can talk to anyone on Twitter or you can be engaged. You can provide value to lots of people on Twitter. And that's, that's particularly where I found it. Um, and for a next generation, it will be something completely different. It's not necessarily platform oriented, but it's like, in what ways can you cut across the world or cut mm-hmm. through or cut past? And what tools do you have in your toolkit that, yeah, I, that don't require privilege to, to become um, influential from or, yeah, that sort of thing. Okay. I get that. Mm-hmm. I get that. Okay. So, Final, 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 final question. Who can work with you at Girl Geek Academy and how? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're growing those options at the moment, which is very fun. <laughs> but if anyone is interested, I check all the emails all the time. Um, we take the um, approach of collaborative problem solving. So what we really like to hear from people is, oh, here's how here's a problem I've identified and here's how I think we could work together to solve it. Um, that's what I respond to as opposed to people saying, Hey, I have a problem. What, what can you do for me to fix it? Um, I, I prefer people to come to me and say, do you want to work together to solve this problem? I think it'll be fun. I think it'll have an impact. I think you could make money. That one always sticks high on my list, <laughs> but you know, like, so, so that's the approach. Like I'm, Partnerships is how we live and breathe. So if people want to work with us, it's turn up and self-identify 
this is what I want to do with you. Okay. Awesome. And Sarah Moran, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, we are at girlgeekacademy.com. I am at Sarah Moran on Twitter and also at Girl Geek Academy on Twitter. Um, yeah, we live and breathe social media. So hit us up. So good. And there are multiple ways to say your last name. I said it the correct way. I just want to say that. <laughs> you did. You did. So yes, Sarah, Sarah Moran. I can't even say it correctly, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had to focus because I forgot your name as soon as this camera came on. I'm joking. Thank you so much for joining us on Sweathead and uh, best wishes with uh, conquering the world. The world needs conquering. Yeah, right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. awesome. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks.